you could meditate all day, but if you're not clear about what it is that you want, it's very hard for nature to give you the thing. And conversely, you could line your wall with vision boards and watch the secret on repeat. But if you are not meditating, chances are you don't believe that you deserve your desires. And we don't get what we want in life. We get what we believe we deserve. And if you get your buns to the chair every single day, twice a day, and carve out that stress from your nervous system, you actually start to believe that you deserve your desires. Welcome to Commune, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. I'm your host, Jeff Krasnow. In addition to being a podcast, Commune is also an online course platform hosting some of the world's greatest teachers. To learn more, click the link in the episode show notes or go to onecommune.com. We all have stress we need to manage in our lives. God knows I do. And chances are you've read the headlines about how meditation is great for anxiety, sleep, productivity, etc. And yet, even though most of us feel we should be meditating, we're still not making time for it. We try a free app here or a challenge there, but if we don't feel like we get enough value out of those experiences, how can we expect ourselves to continue doing something that feels like a waste of time? Meet Emily Fletcher, the creator of the Ziva Technique, author of the new book, Stress Less, Accomplish More, and an expert in meditation for high performance. Emily believes meditation is the single most important piece of mental hygiene we need to be practicing as a species, and that these barriers to entry can be easily broken down with a simple shift in perspective and technique. Emily has been named one of the top 100 women in wellness to watch and has taught more than 15,000 students around the world. Ziva graduates include Oscar, Grammy, Emmy, and Tony Award winners, as well as NBA players, CEOs, busy parents like me, entrepreneurs, and everyone in between. Ten years ago, Emily was a Broadway star, appearing in shows like Chicago, The Producers, and A Chorus Line, huge achievements for a young actress. But the pressure to hit the next note or to get the next role had her going gray, literally, at age 27, suffering from insomnia, underperforming, and getting sick every other month. And all the while, she thought her struggle was just par for the course. That all changed in 2008 when Emily was introduced to meditation, curing her insomnia and improving her health on day one. Her physical and professional transformation was so dramatic that she felt inspired to share it with others. So Emily left Broadway and headed to Rishikesh, India, where she began three years of teacher training. She would go on to found Ziva in 2011, open a New York City studio, and create one of the world's first online meditation trainings. The Ziva technique is a trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifestation designed to unlock your full potential, offering such benefits as decreased stress, less anxiety, deeper sleep, improved immune function, and increased productivity. Today, I sit down and talk with Emily about the difference between mindfulness and meditation and why so many of us have such a hard time sticking with a meditation practice. If you've ever struggled with meditation, this is the episode for you. I'm Jeff Krasnow, and welcome to Commune. Emily Fletcher. I'm a meditation teacher. I'm a mama. 
I'm a founder of a company. I'm a wife. Good. And you're a tenor. And a tenor. Yep. I mean, I have a very low singing voice. And this is a big part of your life. Well, I mean, I'm not actually a tenor. Like, I was just like a low alto, but I used to joke that I would sing tenor. I could sing tenor. Sing. Mm-hmm. But what I mean is that you're a performer. You I'm, were on Broadway for yeah, a long time. Long time, 10 years. So how does a Florida girl grow up with a dream of being on Broadway? My parents stupidly took me to see a Broadway show when I was 10 years old, and it was game over. I was like, oh, this is where I'll live. This is what I'll do. And it was so funny. It was not a question. It was just, I, this is... This is what I'll do, period, the end. I knew it with every cell in my being. I didn't know when or how, but I was like, oh, that's that's what I'll do. I started going to this place called Young Actors Theater when I was in fourth grade, so I was eight. And I remember I was sitting on the floor of my mom's bathroom reading a newspaper, and there was an ad for a place called Young Actors Theater, which Tony Hale went to and Jimmy Bennett and all these amazing people, Cheryl Hines. And I looked at my mom, and I was like, oh, I'm going to need to go there. I'm going to be an actress. And she was like, you're eight. You don't know what you're talking about. But she enrolled me, and so I started going, and then it it wasn't until I got into high school where we did this big musical. I mean, like $30,000, $40,000 musicals at a public high school in Florida. We did Singing in the Rain. We made it rain on stage. And I knew then that I was serious. I was like, oh, this is definitely what I'm going to do with my life. So I started auditioning for musical theater colleges. I went to Florida State. I was a BFA in musical theater. And then moved to New York right after I graduated. And my second day there, I got my first job. And then I basically worked nonstop for 10 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you had this dream when you were a young girl. You had this focus for achieving that dream. You achieved the dream. And then what happened? And then I got so, so sad. Aww. Three weeks after my Broadway debut, I was 22 years old. I was doing 42nd Street on Broadway, and it was the saddest I'd ever been because I, I realized at that age I was – I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. And and I think most of us have this goal in life that we think is going to make us happy. And I had the blessing of achieving it at a pretty young age. So I realized, oh, wait, my happiness was not on the other side of that achievement. So I started looking for it in other places. But I didn't really know that at 22. So I just thought it was like the next boyfriend, the next job, the next zero in the bank account, the next agent. And when you're an actor, you know, it's very easy to keep that pot of gold at the end of the proverbial rainbow going. So anyway, cut to 10 years later, I'm an understudying three of the lead roles in a chorus line on Broadway, and which means you show up to the theater, no idea which character you're going to play. Led to a lot of anxiety. That led to insomnia. Led to me going gray at 26. Led to me getting sick and injured. And then I found meditation, and it cured my insomnia on the first day. I did not get sick for eight and a half years after that. I stopped getting injured, and I started enjoying my job again. I think people... That will really resonate with people. You were more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. Mm. Because I think everyone can relate to that. We are happiest as humans when we're working towards something bigger than ourselves. When we feel fully engaged in creating something, growing something, being a part of a team, like that's when we're happiest. It's never when you get the trophy. It's never when you sell the company. It's never when you, I mean, people's wedding days are nightmares. People are like, oh, I'll be happy when I get married. But it's like, then they're so stressed on their wedding day, they don't even remember it. Or I'll be happy when I have a kid and you're so sleep deprived when you have a child. Like it's never about the attainment of the desire. It's always about the feeling that we assume the the desire will bring. And so 
I just feel very fortunate that I was able to sort of check this big check mark off my list and realized that it was not going to make me happy. So then I started looking for it in the only place that it resides, which is inside of us. And, and that's what meditation gave me. It gave me the ability to access my own fulfillment internally. So then you had achieved a tremendous amount. There you were, up in lights, and you left all that to go to India? <laughs> kind of, yeah. I, so I met your mom mm-hmm. the other day. What did she think of that idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, my mom, she seems like a really gracious, patient woman, but what does mom think of going to India when your daughter, you put your daughter through all these schools, you, she made it rain on the stage, and now she's... She's in Rishikesh or something? Yeah, I was in Rishikesh, and bless my mom's heart. I mean, she is from a small town in Florida. You know, we were raised Southern Baptists, and she's like, what is going on? Why are you going to India? But at this point, I had already, like, done a show in Russia. I had already done a show in China, a show in Japan. So she was used to my crazy exploits. Um, So by the time I went to India, she just knew that there was no point in, like, worrying about me or no point in trying to stop me. I was just like, this thing has changed my life. It's rocked my world. I want to go to the source. I was also going to turn 30. And I was like, it felt like a great 30th birthday present to give to myself. And I was in this sort of transition phase as an actress. I was like, I'm either going to, you know, work really hard and start playing like leading roles and winning Tonys and things. Or I was interested in potentially coming to LA and starting and like transitioning into doing more TV and film. But I knew I wasn't, I didn't want to like be in the ensemble anymore. I didn't want to be understudying the lead role anymore, which I've been doing for a long time. And I was happy to do the work, but I just wasn't really sure which direction yet. So when I went to India, it was just this deep in my own practice. But here's a fascinating story. I think this is a cool story. So I learned to meditate in the four days in between Chorus Line Broadway and Chorus Line Tour. And I, our second city on the Chorus Line Tour was LA. And I knew there was a lot of meditation teachers here. And so when I got here, I started Googling and I was looking for group meditations because I just wanted to learn and enrich my practice. And so I found a guy in Venice. He's like, yeah, we're having a group meditation on Wednesday. Come on over. I show up and it's just him and his girlfriend. And I was like, well, this is not the type of group meditation I was looking for. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, no, we just thought you seem nice. So just come on over. We'll meditate together. So I'm, I'm meditating with like my purse on my lap and one eye open. And after the meditation, I open up my eyes and there's this beautiful like photo or painting. I couldn't really tell, but it was a bridge of some sort with a light at the end of it. And I said, what is that? And he said, that's Rishikesh. And I was like, what's a Rishikesh? And he goes, that's this town in India. We do this retreat there. He said, are you coming? I said, no. And I looked at him and I looked at the painting and and I said, yes, I'm going to go. And cut to six months later, I'm in India, I'm in Rishikesh, and we used to meditate on the Ganges every morning at dawn. And so we'd have to cross the Ganges to go to our our meditation spot. And this first morning that we're going, we're walking, and I see this bridge, the exact bridge from the photo, and the sun is rising on the other side of it. And I stop in my tracks and I start sobbing, crying. And I knew that the me in that moment had gone to the me in Venice and said, you have to come to India, you have to be a teacher. And every time I tell that story, I get goosebumps. It was like time sort of folded over on itself. That's a great story. Mm-hmm. And at that juncture, you're like, okay, now I'm ready to bring some of this teaching onto the world. And and were you 
And what was that teaching specifically? Was it grounded in a particular meditation tradition of which there are many? So I now, you know, teach the Ziva technique, which is a trifecta of mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. But in the first five or six years of me teaching, I was just teaching meditation. And I was teaching the type of meditation that I was taught, which, you know, was called Vedic. And it's more of like this self-induced transcendence style of meditation. What most people are calling meditation out there, I would actually call mindfulness. So most of the apps, most of the drop-in studios, most of the YouTube videos are teaching what I would call mindfulness. Anytime someone is guiding you through, anytime you're focusing on your breath, anytime you're visualizing something, it's activating that prefrontal cortex is keeping you more in that waking state, left brain state of consciousness. And a smaller part of the brain lights up a very, very bright, which is different than this type of meditation, which is all about surrendering. It's all about letting go. It's all about deep healing rest, which is very good at dealing with your stress from the past. Mm-hmm. So interesting distinction. I think that mindfulness is very good at a state change in the now, getting rid of your stress in the now. Whereas this type of meditation is all about getting rid of stress from the past, which is old ultimately, what is up-leveling performance. Yeah, so this is, I think, a really great distinction. And honestly, it's very confusing to a lot of people, including me sometimes. Because so Ziva is based on the three M's, on three principles, mindfulness, meditation, and manifesting. Can you just go back and create a distinction or a differentiation between mindfulness, what does that actually mean, and meditation? Because that would be really helpful because those terms get thrown around, I think, a little casually and they can be very confusing. Yes, I think you're absolutely right and it would be my sincere pleasure because (laughs) people are using meditation and mindfulness like synonyms, Mm -hmm. but they're not synonyms. So I would define mindfulness as the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment. Beautiful, powerful. And you could do that with a mindful breath. That's why people say, well, walking in the woods is my meditation or cooking is my meditation. And what they're saying is I get present when I cook. I get present when I walk in the woods. I am conscious when I'm riding my bike. Cool, great. It ain't meditation. <laughs> yes, it, you can, it can be a meditative experience, a mindful experience. But if we call it meditation, it's like, no, cooking is called cooking, exercise is called exercise, <laughs> and meditation is called meditation. That's right. why they have their own words. Um, so, so mindfulness is like most of the apps, anytime someone's guiding you through, if you're focusing on your breath or visualizing something, I'm calling that mindfulness. Now, the type of meditation that I teach at Ziva is based on something called Nishkam Karma Yoga, which means union attained by action hardly taken. Lazy man's meditation, which means you're not doing anything hard. You don't have to have an erect spine. You don't need fancy fingers. You don't have to concentrate or clear your mind or focus. Um, It's really kind of like a nap sitting up. And what's interesting about it is that in it, you're giving your body rest that's five times deeper than sleep. And that's not insignificant because when you give your body the rest that it needs, it knows how to heal itself. And it's not only healing itself from the stress from the now, like mindfulness, it's actually getting rid of your stress from the past. All that stuff stuff that we have stored in our cellular and now we know epigenetic memories. If you give your body this deep healing rest to de-excite the nervous system, this stress starts to come up and out. So I liken it to mindfulness is like an aspirin. Like you have a headache, you take an aspirin, you feel better in the now. Meditation is more like the vitamin, right? It's, it's like you're doing it every day. It's not just crisis meditation. You know, you do it every day. So you're fortifying and strengthening and increasing your state of consciousness. So how does mindfulness and meditation relate to manifestation? Mm. So what I found from teaching a lot of folks is that 
the combination of meditation and manifesting is so much more powerful together than either one alone. And P.S., I define manifesting as consciously creating a life you love. It's you getting intentional about what you want your life to look like. And a lot of us think we're manifesting, but we're secretly complaining. You know, we think we're praying, but we're secretly just begging. You know, we ask questions like, why can't I lose this weight? Why did she get a raise and I didn't? When am I going to get a boyfriend? And, and that is worshiping the space between where you are and where you think you should be. And that is the definition of stress, the space between where you are and where you think you should be. And you do not want to water those weeds. We want to instead water the flowers. And so the real trick in the manifesting of what I teach in Siva is that we imagine the dream as if it's happening now. And that's not that complicated, but I am fascinated by how infrequently people are asking themselves these questions. What do I want to do? And certainly taking the time to imagine the reality as if it's happening now. But as they play in with each other, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Because you could meditate all day, but if you're not clear about what it is that you want, it's very hard for nature to give you the thing. And conversely, you could line your wall with vision boards and watch the secret on repeat. But if you are not meditating, chances are you don't believe that you deserve your desires. And we don't get what we want in life. We get what we believe we deserve. And if you get your buns to the chair every single day, twice a day, and carve out that stress from your nervous system, you actually start to to believe that you deserve your desires. Because I think people wonder what that relationship is between meditation and high performance or living the life that you love. Yeah. And 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 I think what I'm hearing is that it's that relationship between meditation and manifestation that closes that gap mm-hmm. between what you desire and what your reality is. Is that is that right? Yes, absolutely. I think you know, you probably hear a lot of the time, well, I I can't do it. I'm like, what does that actually mean when I say, "Oh, well, I tried to meditate, but I'm just no good at it." Is that like what does that mean? <laughs> Yes, I hear it all day, every day. Yeah. I'm like, I want to meditate. I, I get that it's good for I get that there's thousands yeah, of peer-reviewed scientific good, right? studies. Like, <laughs> at this point, unless you're living under a rock, you know you should be meditating. No one's actually meditating. And this is the exact reason that I wrote this book, to bridge the gap between everyone who has tried meditation and everyone who actually meditates. Um, because every time I give a talk at a company or at a you know conference or something, I say, how many people in the room have tried meditation? 100% of the hands go up. All right, how many of you guys have a daily practice? of the hands go down. And so it's just, it's mind boggling to me how someone could like get the keys to the kingdom and then put them down. And so what I've realized is one of two things is happening. Either they're not, they haven't actually learned to meditate and they don't know what they're doing. So they're not seeing a return on time invested, which we can talk about in a minute. But the people who are like, I've tried and I just can't do it. I'm no good at it. What they're really saying is I think I should be able to magically clear my mind and I can't. So I think that I'm failing. Right, because I think there is a general conception that meditating is about clearing your thoughts. Yep. And then you have this experience of trying to meditate, Mm -hmm. and of course, you're thinking all the time. There's thoughts popping in and out and all the time. Is that failure? No, it is not failure. So help clear this up. Okay, so for anyone who is listening, who has tried meditation and felt like a failure because you felt frustrated because you were thinking about your ex-boyfriend or your taxes or work, you are not a meditation failure. The really good news here is that the mind thinks 
involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. So trying to give the brain a command to shut up is as impactful as trying to give the heart a command to stop beating. It does not work. And yet this is the criteria by which most people are judging themselves on, and it's why most people feel like meditation failures. So the good news is that you can get all these scientifically proven benefits like deeper sleep and better sex and reversing your body age and increased immune function and more productivity even if you're having thoughts during the practice. I like to say we meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. And you'll know the meditation is working if you get better at life. So I know in your book, you suggest that you can start to avail yourself of the benefits of meditation by essentially, you know, meditating, get, working up to about 15 minutes twice a day. Mm-hmm. Is there an even, uh, is there is there an even kind of on-ramp to even that? Are there practices that people can employ in two minutes when they just have a, a break? Or is that just like fake, not real? It's not fake. I think that there are lots of mindfulness practices. There are lots of breathwork practices that are very good at resetting. You know, just a mo- I have a moment. I have two minutes. I have five minutes in my car. I'm about to walk on stage and I'm feeling nervous. There's lots of tools and techniques you can use in the moment to create a state change. But... <laughs> What I find fascinating is just how willing everyone is to negotiate their time investment on meditation because they haven't yet found a thing that's giving them a significant ROI, right? And so if you're not seeing a return on your time investment because your time is your most valuable resource, then we're always going to try and scrimp. Can I just do it for one minute? Can I just meditate for five minutes? Can I just meditate for like two minutes as I'm falling asleep? And it's like, okay, if, if that is the conversation you're having, then you have not found a practice yet that is a fit for you. And what I found is that I've actually done the math on it. And for what I teach in the book and in Ziva Online, it's 2% of your day. So the question becomes, are you willing to invest 2% of your day to make the other 98% more amazing? And when you think about it like that, you're like, of course. But because most people are doing like a free app or a challenge, but they've never taken the time to learn how to meditate, they don't really know what they're doing. They feel like they're failing. And then it is time wasted. And no one has time to waste. But I think... I want to take meditation out of the like cute pedicure for your brain category and instead start to see it as the single most important piece of mental hygiene that we need to be practicing as a species because stress is making us stupid, sick, and slow. Amen. Part of your technique uh, is mantra-based, right? Mm -hmm. So how does that work? What's a mantra and how does it work? This word mantra has gotten a little hijacked by the wellness industry and a lot of people think of a mantra as an affirmation, you know, like, I'm a strong woman or I deserve abundance. And those are great. Like I actually work out with affirmations and I love them. I think they're very powerful, but it's very different than the original intention for mantra, or at least the types of mantras that we use. Um, so mantra is a Sanskrit word. Man means mind, trap means vehicle. So a mantra is a mind vehicle, custom designed to take you from these active layers of left brain thinking and settle you down into more subtle layers of right brain being. It's that D X I process. It's the thing that's inducing that deep healing rest. And 
interestingly, these mantras that we use in the book and it's even online and in person, they're, they're forgetting devices. They're designed to be forgotten. So it's like you pick them up and then they kind of bury themselves into your right brain and they slip away. So it's not even about the mantra, but it's just like you have to have a key in order to drive a car. You have to have the right key for the right car. Well, similarly with meditation, it's like once you have the mantra, it's like it turns on the key to the car, but you don't just sit there grinding the key the whole time. So it's not about focusing on the mantra, but it is important to have one to sort of start that de-excitation process. I think one thing that people really like about you and about Ziva is that it is it feels very actionable and very practical to this life that we are living every day mm-hmm. and to performing better, whatever your career may be or your relationships may be. I want to ask you about the spiritual dimensions of meditation. You know, I don't know what your spiritual practice is exactly, but how does meditation allow one to access God or or the infinite soul or their divine nature, whatever you want to call it. Is that that part of it for you? Yes. Thank you so much for asking that because I don't get to talk about this too much because I have very much, you know, taken this powerful medicine that is meditation and wrapped it in the candy coating of like, it's going to make you more money and help you have better sex. And all that's true. Like all those selfish reasons that we come to it. But to me, it is very much like the Trojan horse to lead people to discovering themselves, to have direct access to God, to have direct access to the infinite. And when most of us are running around stressed in our left brain, fight or flight, individuality, we don't have full access to that right brain totality. And my definition of God is the collective consciousness of all that is. The collective consciousness of all that is. And if all we have access to is our left brain waking state, it's very hard to feel connected to everyone and everything. But our right brain is the piece of us that doesn't understand individuality. Out here, in here, you, me, there's only one thing and we're all it. That's where the right brain lives. And when you start taking that thing to the gym every day, twice a day, that sort of connectedness and everythingness starts to permeate your waking state and you start to hold that with you even with your eyes open. And so you start to see more of yourself inside of others, more of others inside of you you start to see the divinity in everything. Mm. Uh, And that's a byproduct of getting to the chair every day, twice a day. Oprah likes to call meditation mainlining God, which I love a heroin God analogy. (laughs) (laughs) But I like it because it's just direct access. Right. And, And there's that quote, which is so beautiful, that prayer is talking to God, meditation is listening. I think what I'm hearing you say is that meditation, aside from all of the practical benefits, helps us shed what Tagore called like our little self or Mm -hmm. our our ego, Mm -hmm. which tells us all of these lies about ourselves, that we are what we have or what people think of us or what we do, but more importantly, that we are separate from others and that we are separate from God. Mm -hmm. And that we, if we can cultivate this practice, that we can live a more connected life from this place of the soul, like right here on earth. Yeah. What is infinite is very hard for humans to grasp. Things that materialize and take form but eventually decay and disintegrate. So it's very hard for us to understand something, a concept that never starts and never ends, that has no place in time or space or no location. And meditation is this unbelievable tool 
to get beyond what I think of as our five senses and to get a glimpse into that which is infinite. Mm. And that is the place where our soul lives Mm -hmm. and where our ego doesn't. And so how do we actually find that, live from our the place of our infinite soul, which we experience, you know, through love and through compassion and through eternal gentleness and all these things. It's very, very hard to live from that place all the time. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay to not be there all the time. Because again, it's the happiness of pursuit. And if you were there all the time, you'd probably be in such a high state of consciousness <laughs> that you wouldn't have too much to learn, that this world wouldn't be that relevant to you anymore. So you could just shed the body and move on. The way I think about it is this beautiful analogy of the wave in the ocean. You know, that there really is only one thing and we are all it. And that one thing is consciousness. But when all we have access to is our left brain, it's like we're walking around in this little wave mentality. Well, I'm a three foot wave and you're a five foot wave. So I better get out of your way. But when we start meditating, and we start utilizing that mantra, it de-excites the nervous system and it reminds that wave that it is also the ocean. And so you go into this space of right brain beingness. And I'm not Emily Fletcher, a 39-year-old redheaded meditation teacher in Los Angeles. I just am. And then when I come out of that meditation, when I come out of that oceanic consciousness and I go back into being a wave, I'm fully aware that I'm a wave, but I also have reminded myself that I am simultaneously the ocean. And so to me, it's always that simultaneity of wave and ocean. The ocean is never not the wave. The wave is never not the ocean. Both things are real. It's not an illusion of being a wave. That wave is real, but it's the appearance of separateness that we're trying to transcend. Yeah, living in the and and Mm -hmm. embracing that paradoxical duality. Yeah. 50% left brain, 50% right. I don't think nature makes mistakes. So here you are. And what are you, what is your, the legacy that you are creating for yourself? What is that manifestation? I mean, you obviously have the tools to get very clear on what that is. What is that for you? Mm. Well, I'm in an interesting point right now because I've been planting so many seeds. So I feel like I'm in this harvesting time right now. And I feel like I'm not super sure just yet what seeds I want to plant for the next chapter. And I'm I'm okay with that. Like I'm really doing my best to just enjoy this harvesting phase. I want to be so, so present with my baby. I'm really doing my best to enjoy this book tour and every podcast and every interview because this is the part that's fun for me. Sitting at a computer and writing a book is like torture for me. (laughs) But this part is fun. The parties and the sharing of it and the teaching and the speaking. Like I love this. And so... I know there's bigger and exciting next chapters, and I'm not totally sure what they are just yet, and that's okay. But I will say that like some inklings of some like fun things that I would like to manifest would be like some massive partnership with like a Starbucks or like if Bulletproof Coffee blows up where people come in, they use the real estate in the morning for their coffee, but in the afternoon, that space is empty. So they come in and meditate and utilize that space that's already there. I would love to see like big corporate, like global corporations licensing Ziva online so you know because they have these built-in infrastructures and so you can reach a massive amount of people in a short amount of time. So I think what I'm hearing in everything that you're describing is essentially bringing this practice to the widest possible audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are stressed. Doctors are calling stress the black plague of our century. Harvard Medical School is suggesting that 90% of all doctors' visits are related to stress. And the thing is, people don't even know what it's costing them until it's until it's gone. Like you don't even know how much that background of anxiety and depression, reviewing the past, rehearsing the future is costing you until you have a tool to get out of it. 
learn more about Ziva or explore the many courses Commune offers, click the links in the show notes or go to onecommune.com. Thanks for listening to the Commune Podcast. We're back with new episodes every week, so hit subscribe, leave a review, and share us with a friend. After you meditate, of course. I'm Jeff Krasnow, and I'll see you next time.